several months in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We actually started in the middle of February, unpacking verse by verse the reality of future resurrection for all believers. And any scripture in this chapter not directly talking about the future resurrection was introducing it, supporting it. And now we come to the end of the chapter. Not only the final section of the chapter, but also the final lessons on what all of this means for the Christian, but also for the Lord. Would you join me in 1 Corinthians 15? Our passage for this morning is verses 54 through 57. 1 Corinthians 15, 54 through 57. Coming to the end of his discourse, his instruction on the bodily resurrection of all believers, Paul writes this, But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. This morning I want to give you three final lessons on the resurrection. Three final lessons on the resurrection. Final concluding lessons are often the most important. They summarize and put into practice everything that you have seen thus far, everything that was taught prior. And this is the case here. Our first final lesson on the resurrection is the victorious conclusion. The victorious conclusion. Let me read for you again verses 40, excuse me, 54 and 55. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Last week we saw that the resurrection body is necessary for existence and eternity. It's a theme, a truth, a reality that we have seen throughout 1 Corinthians 15. Being today in these temporal earthly bodies, we will one day die and be glorified in, for eternity and in eternity. Back in verses 51 through 53, we read this. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. This was an explanation of what will happen one day in the future. Specifically speaking about the rapture indicated, signaled by the trumpet sound. And as we saw last week, the mystery that he's revealed here was that not all believers will physically die. Those alive at the time of the rapture will be taken up to meet Jesus in the air. They do not need to die in order to do that. Those who had previously died before this time, this point in time, will be raised But ultimately, the main point is that both parties, all believers, dead or alive, will be changed. All of this is signaled again by the trumpet, which is often the sound in the Scriptures to announce the presence or the manifestation of the Lord. Now, Paul continues this thought 
with similar terminology in our passage this morning, verse 54, by reiterating the same terms we saw in verse 53. But here, he moves on to describe what happens when the glorified bodies have arrived. In other words, he moves from what must take place, which we saw last week, to what will take place. And what will take place is the fulfillment of what was said in Isaiah 25, 8, which Paul quotes in part here, he will swallow up death for all time, and the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces, and he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. That is Isaiah 25, 8. And the part about death being swallowed up is what Paul alludes to, what Paul quotes here in 1 Corinthians 15. Back in verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul told us that the last enemy of God to be abolished after Christ has abolished all other rule, authority, and power is death. And here in our verse this morning, he says death will be, quote, swallowed up. To swallow something is a picture we have in the Bible of something being destroyed. It is something that is often depicted in movies and cartoons as well in our modern day. But more importantly, in the Scriptures, Proverbs talks about the wicked desiring to swallow up the innocent. In Habakkuk, Habakkuk, the prophet, in complaining against God, asked God, why is he remaining silent? while the wicked swallow up the righteous. In other words, why are you just waiting as the wicked destroy the righteous? And then in Isaiah 25, which Paul quotes here, it speaks of death's complete destruction when God swallows it up. And back when we looked at verse 26 and the surrounding verses, we talked about how when we think about something that is destroyed, in a battle or a war, we think of buildings, we think of military bases, we think of people and weapons. We don't think of something like death. And it reminds us of the victory of Jesus Christ, that even something as inevitable as death will be destroyed. But he says it will be swallowed up. And to understand the fullness of this term, and so the fullness of God's victory in swallowing up death, we need to understand the sense of the original Hebrew, which Paul quotes here from Isaiah 25. What it tells us is that death is not merely destroyed so that it can no longer do any harm. It's done. Death is swallowed up. It can no longer harm anyone from that point on. However... The damage it has inflicted is already there. That's not what Isaiah 25 is saying. It is not like a criminal who is given the death penalty and so he is no longer able to hurt anyone again, but the damage inflicted on his previous victims remains. That is not the idea here. The idea here is that death, yes, can no longer hurt anymore, but also that the damage done by death to believers in the past is undone. How? Resurrection. Resurrection. 
It is in the resurrection of the saints that death is destroyed. To put it another way, the end of death requires the resurrection of the dead. Since this is true, we know a couple of things. First, since the resurrection is not only guaranteed, but is a resurrection unto eternal sinless life. Okay, this isn't like Lazarus raised from the dead to one day die again. This is a resurrection unto eternal life. So the first thing we must understand is the victory over death is successful and permanent. Death, once swallowed up, will never come back. Secondly, we need to understand that since victory over death is found in resurrection and resurrection is found in Jesus Christ, what we have in this battle is the defeat of death, arguably the most powerful force in this world. But it is defeated by a superior power, the power of God. Only God can do it. Which explains why Paul can go on in verse 55. Not like a naive child who will one day be beaten, but like someone who knows that what he has just said is true and certain, that death will be swallowed up in victory. He goes on to taunt death. Verse 55, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? This is in part a quote of Hosea 13, 14. We've already talked about how death is ultimately not the victor. God is the victor. Technically, God in Christ via resurrection. Now, the word victory that he uses here presents to us a big picture, long-term principle. It's big picture thinking. But with the word sting... Paul brings us to specifics. He brings us from the future victory to our present current circumstances. Death will be destroyed in the future. Its sting is removed right now. In the present, death has been rendered harmless. The sting of death has been dealt with. We will still die but there is no sting. How so? Let me explain. When you think of the word sting, you naturally conjure up images of a venomous creature such as a scorpion or a snake. This is the exact word here in the Hebrew and the Greek. But you take away that stinger from that scorpion or the fangs of the snake, it has no power. You have nothing to fear, even if the creature is still crawling around. It can't hurt you. And that's the picture that the Scriptures present to us about death. Now, we understand that in this context, sting refers to something much more serious than a fang or a stinger. Death's sting has given it dominion over the entirety of mankind. But for the believer, because of Christ's ultimate future victory over death that has been initiated in the past by His resurrection... The sting of death for us today has been incapacitated. We have no fear of death because we know where we're going. 
Now, I've said it before, we may fear dying, we may fear pain in dying, but we don't fear death. We don't fear death. Because for the believer, death is gain. Death is eternity. Death is presence with God. I mean, you think about death. To not fear death is an anomaly for mankind in general. In 2020, okay, so before COVID, before the vaccine, global pharmaceutical revenues totaled $1.27 trillion. And in that same year, the global gym industry was worth $96.7 billion. Because man fears death. There is venom in the sting of death. But for the believer, that venom has been absorbed by Jesus Christ. He was stung and absorbed the venom on our behalf. Thus making Christ, not death, the victor. Because the victor is God, the victory and the removal of the sting for us is solely due to the fact that we are in Christ. We belong to God. We are God's people. And so we praise Him for the gospel. We praise Him for His plan of redemption. Because in the grand scheme of things, in the big plan, you need to understand, in God's power and sovereignty, death is merely an instrument in God's hands. It is not something He has no control over. Its work, however, is temporary. And a day is coming when resurrection will step in and reverse all that was thought to be within death's victorious domain. And Jesus Christ will prove to be the victor. You perhaps, heard, perhaps have heard that phrase, he cheated death. I cheated death. They taunt it because they survived a car accident or near-death experience, or they work hard to be healthy and fit, but they still die. They will still die. You may not understand how you survived that accident. You may say that you won over death in that moment, but that individual will still die someday. There's no way around it. For all intents and purposes, the best that man can do is beat death once in their minds or try to delay it, all the while knowing that it's still coming. Death is inevitable. Death will win. There's no way around it for the human body. But can you imagine, despite all of this, Despite the trillions of dollars that we as a society have poured into making sure that we don't die, that we can stand and face death and taunt it, to make fun of it, to laugh at it, because we know it has no true victory or sting. We do. We have victory. We have victory in Jesus Christ. Not just because we'll go to heaven. 
but because we'll know we'll go to heaven and then come back down here in glorified, resurrected, physical bodies. The very form of which death took at one point or will take, but we will be victorious in Jesus Christ. We will be some sort of superhuman that never dies or decays for that matter. Think about your life. Think about when people ask you about your faith and your Christianity and they ask you, what is that all about? Who are you? What makes you a Christian? How would you define that? I believe after studying 1 Corinthians 15 all these months, we would understand what a gross misinterpretation of who you are in Christ when Christianity is merely described as, I go to church, or merely described as, I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Even, I know when I die I'm going to heaven, doesn't fully capture the essence and the bulk of your eternity. You will be here, physically, walking around in a glorified body. You know, we often pose the question, when you die, who do you want to talk to? Like, who do you want to meet? And we make it seem like when we meet a celebrity here, we'll get one chance to ask a question and that's it. What Bible character? Which relative? And we picture this ethereal place in the clouds where we'll float around and engage to a certain degree others in the body. And say, oh, I'd like to talk to this person. I want to know what was going through his mind when he did this. But that's not what's going to happen. We will be here, fellowshipping with Christ and each other perfectly. We will be living life with Abraham, with Moses, with Esther, with the Twelve. We will be walking around with Spurgeon, with R.C., with Jim Elliott, with your parents, your grandparents, your stillborn children, your children yet to come and generations after us. We'll be there forever, interacting, living life, never dying your Christian testimony does not end with holy living on earth. We have to acknowledge and absorb the reality of future resurrection and let it be a part of your daily living. This should influence every ounce of your being. Well, let's talk more about the sting of death. Why does death sting? Where does its power come from? People say it's scary because we die. People miss us. People mourn us. It's painful. But we as believers know that there's more to death than just the end of a heart beating. This leads us to our next final lesson on the resurrection, the vile cause. The vile cause. Verse 56. The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. We've talked about this principle in generalities before. Our earthly bodies are subject to decay and death because of sin. Our glorified bodies are not because of the absence of sin. And that being said, we get into the contextual specifics that tell us, 
And I quote, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. What does this mean? Let's start with the first phrase, The sting of death is sin. I've mentioned it to you in this series before in this way. I've simply said, Death exists because of sin. Let's elaborate on that. Although we have spoken much about the earthly bodies having that harrowing combination of death and decay, we have to understand, and this is important, death is not the result of decay. It is the result of sin. Using Paul's analogy of the sting, we can say that death is the result of the deadly venom, which is sin. And the connection between sin and death is clear all the way back in Genesis and throughout the Scriptures. I invite you to turn with me to Romans, where we're going to park it for a while, where Paul lays out this connection for us theologically. Start in Romans chapter 1, verse 32, and we'll look at some various verses regarding the connection between sin and death. In Romans 1.32, leading up to this verse, Paul has listed several sinful habits of the unregenerate, the unbeliever. And then he says, those who practice such things are worthy of death. He's not talking about Roman law. He's talking about God's law, God's justice, God's wrath. Jump to chapter 6 and look at verse 16. Romans 6.16. It brings up this idea that we are either slaves of sin or slaves of righteousness. Romans 6.16, Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? Look at verse 21, Romans 6. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed, the sinful things, for the outcome of those things is death. And of course, you know Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. We use that verse a lot in sharing the gospel, but do you understand the wonderful terminology that he's using there. The wages of sin. Not the result of sin. He says the wages. In other words, where where else do you receive wages? You work for wages. You have earned it with your actions. And it's why he uses this word here. You have earned death through your sin. It's your wages. It is your just desserts. It is your just pay. You want fair. The world wants fair. That's fair to get from God what you have worked for, what you have earned. Your works are sin. The result is death. I want you to keep your finger in Romans. We'll go back there in a couple minutes. Back to our point. Death reigns because of the power of sin. And it was through sin that death gained the upper hand on mankind. And since all are born slaves to sin, so death is inevitable for all men. 
But Paul continues in 1 Corinthians 15, 56 and says, and the power of sin is the law. Sin, you've heard it defined before as literally missing the mark. The mark or the target would be the law. In other words, if you don't have a target, you never miss. And since there is a moral target in the law of God, and man by his very nature is prone to miss that target, it stands to reason that the law energizes sin. The law defines sin. A policeman cannot tell you you have done something illegal if there was no law. He's got to point to a law to tell you what you have done wrong. This is why the Civil Code of California energizes, empowers lawbreakers because you wouldn't be breaking a law without the laws. And so it is with sin. It's the same way we know if someone says, I'm an archer. We know if they're good or bad, only if there's a target that they're trying to hit. Otherwise, we wouldn't know. And if he misses that target a lot, we know how badly they fail. So in comparing our lives to the standard of God, the law, we see how badly we fail. Therein lies the power of sin, the law. Turn to Romans chapter 4, verse 15. Romans 4.15 says, when there is, Where there is no law, there also is no violation. Of course. Then jump to 5.13. Romans 5.13. For until the law, sin was in the world. So there was sin. Man was sinners. But sin is not imputed when there is no law. In other words, from the time of Adam until Moses, all men were sinners. However, until Moses was given the law by God, there were no specifics because there was no law to break. So until then, you couldn't count to sin against them in the sense that there was no law broken because the law was not given yet. And even though the knowledge of the law is what gives power to sin, we need to remember that the law is a good thing. I mean, think about our society. Who thinks the law is a bad thing? For the most part, criminals. The law is holy. It is righteous. It is good, Romans 7.12. It is God's very will. It is the reflection into commands of His character. And as such... The law never consents to be violated. The law never says it's okay to break me, to violate me, because its author, God, never consents to be disobeyed. He never says it's okay. God and His law will always react against the one who violates His word. I'm going to say that again because it's important. God and His law will always react against those who violate His Word. Think about it. We say that those who are not believers, we say they're at war with God. Why? Because they violate His law. Because they're sinners. 
it's the same thing. An unbelieving sinner is at war with God. And so the power of sin lays in the standards or the law which man could not keep. Romans 7. I'm going to read a larger chunk. Romans 7, verses 7 through 13. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So then, the law is holy. And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? Is the law the reason death came? May it never be. Rather, it was sin. In order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, the law, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. The law is good. We're not to condemn it because it exposes our sin. It brings us to Christ. It shows us our need for Christ. But it is also why there is death because of our sin. Look at Romans 5, verses 20 through 21. The law came in so that the transgression or the sin would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So even though transgression or sin increased because of the law, for the believer, the more we sin, the more grace abounds because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done. And that leads us to our third and final point, the veritable conqueror. Three final lessons on the resurrection. We have seen the victorious conclusion, the vile cause, and finally, the veritable conqueror. Verse 57. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The reality of all of this is highlighted in that powerful word, victory. Because victory is the language of war. Victory is the language of the existence of enemies. Victory is language that indicates that the enemy, theoretically, could have been the victor. I believe that in knowing these fundamental realities of victory versus loss, the words that Paul says here, but thanks be to God, have way more significance for us. Although it was always true that God would be the victor, it is in His grace that you as an individual 
are part of that victory. That He has chosen you and saved you. He has chosen you to be part of the winning team. And notice how He phrases this. He says, who gives us the victory. The language of giving is the language of grace. It was a gift. We did not earn it. It is in our salvation that we gained that victory over death. and We did not earn our salvation. To be specific, the victory He gives us is over sin and the law which lead to death. The verse and the entire testimony of Scripture is clear. God gives us the victory. And the means by which this triumph was won is through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We like to pat ourselves on the back. We like to tell other people what to do. We like to blame shift. That's all in line with forgetting God's grace. We are who we are because of what Jesus Christ has done. We are not to smash, condemn, or judge. We are to thank God for who we are. Everything, everything goes back to the gospel. And the gospel is the source of thanksgiving. Paul writes here and many other places in his epistles, thanks be to God. Christian, are you thankful? Are you thankful? No matter how much life throws at you, even incurable disease and death, rest assured, friends, that the victory is yours. My children are young. They sometimes struggle with gratitude. Obviously, they are children, but more importantly, they are unbelievers. And with their lack of grat- when their lack of gratitude bothers me the most is when we're at the end of a day when they've been given a lot more than a normal day. After a day of fun where we've gone out to a theme park, or perhaps the afternoon, Christmas afternoon, after opening all their presents on Christmas morning. A lack of thankfulness just hits harder at that moment because they've been given so much in very recent memory. The problem is that despite what has happened just moments ago, what they are reacting to is what is happening right now. Not the roller coasters this morning, not the gifts this morning. I don't like what's happening right now, and so they're ungrateful. It doesn't matter how many gifts they got an hour ago if they're not getting the lunch that they want right now. There's a disconnect. Adults, we do this too. Although we can ride the emotion of happiness for longer, as adults we often disconnect what we have been given in Christ with what we think He is withholding from us right now. Our lusts of the eyes and the lusts of the flesh and the boastful pride of life 
make us think we deserve more, and so we complain and we forget about the cross. We forget about victory in Jesus. Usually it's not something physical that we think God is withholding from us. In our redeemed minds, we can understand that. But it's more along the lines of comfort. When the Lord makes us uncomfortable, when the Lord takes away things that remove our happiness, not our joy, He won't take that away. We take that away ourselves, our happiness, our comfort, things like that. We need to remember that we have victory in Jesus. We need to start compartmentalizing the facts of our lives and realize that no matter the circumstance, no matter the feeling, or even in that moment, the reality, the fact of the matter is that we have victory in Jesus Christ and nothing will take that away. Because nothing can remove you from the love of God and the hand of God. And as powerful as He is, even the devil can't go back in time and stop the cross. We have victory in Jesus. And life may be difficult. Life may be hard. You may not get what you want. You may be unhappy. You may think your spouse doesn't do what you want them to do. And the truth of the matter is those may all be Real, objectively. But that doesn't change the reality, the overarching fundamental reality of your very being, which we must remember was not the reality of our being for the first 10, 20, 30, for some of us 70 years of our lives, but by the grace of God. And now we have victory. Three final lessons on the resurrection. The victorious conclusion, the vile cause, and the veritable conqueror. There's a hymn that we once sung. It's been a while. It's called Victory in Jesus. And it speaks of our time of victory and one day in glory in heaven. We can fill in the blanks. We know we will come back to the new redeemed earth. I want to read the lyrics to you. I heard an old, old story how a Savior came from glory, how He gave His life on Calvary to save a wretch like me. I heard about His groaning of His precious blood's atoning. Then I repented of my sins and won or received the victory. I heard about His healing, of His cleansing power revealing, how He made the lame to walk again and caused the blind to see. And then I cried, Dear Jesus, come and heal my broken spirit. And some sweet day I'll sing up there the song of victory. I heard about a mansion He has built for me in glory. And I heard about the streets of gold beyond the crystal sea. About the angel singing and the old redemption story. And some sweet day I'll sing up there the song of victory. 
And the chorus says, Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me and bought me with His redeeming blood. He loved me ere I knew Him, and all my love is due Him. He plunged me to victory beneath the cleansing flood. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in and of ourselves, we have no gall, no courage to say, death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? But it is because of your victory over death and you're calling us to yourself that the sting of death is gone. Death is not victorious. Death for us is just the beginning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. May we live in light of the reality that we will live forever with you, not floating around in heaven, but here in physical state, in glorified, resurrected body. Thank you, Lord, for this old, old story of how you, Lord Jesus, came from glory to die for our sins, to save wretches like us. May we live in the freedom and victory while we're here in these days. May we live boldly for you, our Lord. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.